0: John chapter 20, beginning in the 11th verse. But Mary stood without at the sepulchre weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre, and seeth two angels in white, sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord." She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. She supposing him to be the gardener. In the previous chapter, John chapter 19, at the end of that chapter, we read in verse 41, now in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. There they laid Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Golgotha, the scene of the crucifixion, was um, a bare rocky mountain. It was basically the town garbage heap. But at hand, near to the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. What a contrast between the rough, vulgar face of Golgotha's brow, the place of a skull, and a garden. A garden which had been cultivated, a garden which had been cared for near to the place of this ugly skull mountain. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. It has been noted that one of the interesting features in the Gospel of John is his use of double entendre, that is, words and phrases that have two meanings. Evidently, John enjoys developing a point from nuance, in which a word may have an alternate interpretation. Several times in his gospel, we see this idea of double meanings. Perhaps the premier example is in the 11th chapter of John, when he talks about the words of Caiaphas, the high priest in verse 51, who said that it was necessary that one should die for the people and that the whole nation should perish not. And John adds this editorial, This he spake not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation and not for that nation only, that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Now, I dare say Caiaphas did not intend to teach the substitutionary nature of the atonement when he said it's necessary that one man should die for the people so that the whole nation doesn't perish. But this he spake not of himself, that is, God was controlling, God was intervening. Caiaphas' words, in other words, have a double meaning. They have their richest fulfillment, John says, as a prophecy of the death of Jesus Christ. You see it in the next chapter, John chapter 12, this idea of double meaning. John 12:32, where Jesus says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. We might ask, what does that mean to be lifted up? To go to heaven? But this he spake, he adds, signifying what death he should die. Lifted up on a cross. You know, not lifted up in praise or lifted up to heaven, but the double meaning. And John seems to take some glee in explaining to us that he means being lifted up on a cross. Double entendre. We see it also in John 2 when he says, Destroy this temple. And I will raise it again in three days. And he said that in the proximity of Herod's temple, you know, the majestic, ornate temple at Jerusalem, standing near Herod's temple, Jesus says, destroy this temple. And I will raise it again. And John again takes some delight in pointing out that this he spake of the temple of his body. He's not talking about an earthly temple at all. He's talking about the temple of his body. Double meanings. You see it again when he's talking to the Samaritan woman about living water while he's drawing literal water from Jacob's well. And he said, I can give you living water. And the woman is perplexed. She says, the well is deep and you don't have anything to draw with. How can you give me living water? And I suggest that it's very possible that our text this morning, John 20:15, she supposing him to be the gardener, is another example of a word with a double meaning. Because though Mary thought that this was the gardener in this early morning hour, for who else would have been in the garden at that early hour? She's supposing him to be the gardener. I dare say that in a very real sense, Jesus Christ is the great gardener. And I want us to think about him as the heavenly gardener this morning. Now let's first sort of review the background of the narrative here in John chapter 20 you know that this is the first day of the week. And by the way, one of the greatest changes that ever took place culturally speaking was when the early church changed the day of worship from the Saturday Sabbath to the first day of the week. Do you know why we worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, and not on Saturday like the Jews did for 1,500 years? Well, the Jews observed the Saturday Sabbath for their day of worship in honor of the creation, because God had created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, He had rested. And it was that day that they had marked out to observe the Sabbath in honor of creation. Now, I'm glad to believe God is the Creator this morning. But interestingly, a cultural shift took place, and it's really inexplicable. You can't explain it in sociological terms except in view of the empty tomb, that the early church changed the day of meeting from the Sabbath to the first day of the week. Remember when John was caught up in the Spirit while he was on Patmos Island? It was on the Lord's Day. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That is the first day of the week. Paul tells the Corinthians, when you be gathered together on the first day of the week, he said, it's good to have your collection ready so that you don't focus all attention on giving On that day. The early church met on the first day of the week. Our next passage in Hebrews when we return to that study is going to be on the importance of attending public worship as we'll start in Hebrews 10 25 next time where it says not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is even in that early day. There were church members who were laying out a church who were absenting themselves from the local assembly. And the apostle says, brethren, don't be like others who are getting lax in their church attendance. Come together with the saints on the first day of the week. You know why the church met on the first day of the week instead of the Saturday Sabbath? Because that was resurrection day. And it's a fact, my beloved, that even though today is Easter and we think about the resurrection, every Lord's Day when we assemble is a celebration of the risen Christ. Every Lord's Day. For we have no gospel if Jesus is still in a tomb. There's no good news if death got the victory over him. The wonderful thing that distinguishes Christianity from every philosophy of men and world religion is the fact that our Lord has conquered our biggest problem, which is death. He walked away from the cemetery. He was dead But he lives now, and behold, he's alive forevermore. We trust a living Savior this morning. And that, my beloved, is reason for celebration, for worship, right? We're here today because he lives. Early Christians would greet one another on the streets saying, he is risen. And they knew they had met a fellow Christian when the response returned, he is risen indeed. And my beloved, that's something we share an understanding that believers in Jesus Christ share together that is really our ultimate hopeful note for the future. I don't have to be afraid of the cemetery. I don't have to be afraid of death. I don't have to be afraid of the future because He lives, I can face tomorrow. And you can too. So on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early while it was yet dark. Pre-dawn, Has she been able to sleep that night? Apparently not much, because she's up early. And if you'll read the other gospel accounts of this occasion, you'll find that certain women of our company went to the sepulcher early. So other women like Joanna and Salome and Mary of Bethany were with Mary Magdalene on this occasion. While it was yet dark, she came to the sepulcher. And as soon as she arrives, it appears that some act of vandalism has occurred. She sees the stone rolled away. Now, it was not uncommon for grave robbers to vandalize graves in that day, especially the graves of very influential and wealthy and important people, because they had the hope that they would find some treasures with the body. You know, they could find some gold, some valuable asset they could steal from the dead. So grave robbers were common in that day. And when Mary arrives on the scene, she sees the stone rolled away. And immediately before she investigates any further, she comes to the conclusion that she needs help from others. So verse two says, then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And she says to them, notice her supposition. They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre. They, who's they? They. She doesn't know. She assumes that thieves have stolen his body away. They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. She assumes, because she sees that an act of vandalism has occurred, that grave robbers are responsible. Peter therefore went forth. So as soon as she tells Peter and John, they set out for the tomb. It's interesting that the sisters have felt the need to go to the grave site while the brethren have stayed behind, but as soon as they hear the news that the body of Jesus is gone, they run to the tomb. They came to the tomb, and John says, so they both ran together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. I have no idea why John feels the need to drop the hint that he's a faster runner, then Peter, and perhaps the fact that he didn't name himself here would do away with any idea that somebody might have that he's proud of his fleetness of foot. But anyway, John outruns Peter and arrives at the sepulcher first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying. The cocoon where the body of Jesus had been wrapped and buried is, is still there, undisturbed. But he saw the napkin that was about his head. Of course, after the body had been wrapped and mummified and laid out, there would be a shroud or a cloth a napkin that was placed over the face. And this napkin was not just thrown on the ground, but it was folded neatly and laid aside. And of course, that's the first hint that grave robbers have not been on the scene because grave robbers don't take time to fold grave clothes. But this napkin is neatly folded and laid on the side. Then Peter went in, says verse 8, And saw and believed, for as yet they knew not the scripture. And this to me is a very surprising verse. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Because if you read back in the Gospels, Jesus told them many times over that on the third day he would rise again from the dead. One of the other gospel writers explains what is meant here when he says that they understood not the saying. I mean, if you were unfamiliar with the idea of resurrection and somebody told you that they would die and be buried, but in three days they would rise again from the dead, you wouldn't understand what that meant either. The disciples really didn't understand, and they didn't remember. Not only did they fail to comprehend what it meant, but they failed to remember that Jesus had said to them, that he would rise again from the dead. That's what John means when he says they knew not. They didn't know it as a fact. They didn't remember it, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own home. So once Peter and John realize that the situation is hopeless, then they go home. Apparently the other women went home also, and Mary is left alone. Interestingly, Mary lingers at the tomb. And why do you think she stayed there? I mean, what can she do? She's there because her emotions will not let her leave. She stood there weeping. And the word translated weeping means that she wept incessantly. She wept continuously. She continued weeping, and she wept profusely. This is more than just a little sadness. Mary's heart is broken. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And notice when she looks in, two angels are sitting, one at the head, one at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. She sees something that Peter and John didn't see when they looked in. And interestingly, if I saw angels or if you saw angels, we would probably be surprised and intrigued by that. But she is not even moved by the angels. Interestingly, Mary is concerned only about Jesus. You know, in the Bible, when people encounter angels, they are often afraid. The angel's first comment is generally, fear not. Because, I mean, if you see an angel, it's reason to be startled. But Mary is very casual and cavalier about this side of the angels. They said to her, woman, why weepest thou? And she responds, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him." In other words, she's just having a conversation with these angels. Her concern, again, is with Jesus. She's so wrapped up in her Savior that she's not even moved by the angels. Somebody might have said, well, I can't find Jesus, but at least I had an encounter with angels. That is beside the point as far as she's concerned. She wants to find Jesus. My beloved, may I say, that's the mark of a true believer. A true believer understands there is such a thing as an angel. We know that angels are ministering spirits, but they're not objects of worship right? Our concern is not to worship angels. Our concern is to find Jesus and to bow at his feet. When she had thus said to the angels, she turned herself back and she saw Jesus standing, but she knew not that it was Jesus. Interestingly, there was something about the post-resurrection body of Jesus that defied recognition. In the 24th chapter of Luke on Emmaus Road, Jesus joins Cleopas and his wife in their journey, and it says their eyes were holden that they should not know him. Now, these people had been with Jesus for three and a half years. You would think they would recognize him. But even though it was still Jesus, yet there was something about his resurrection body that looked different that they could not recognize until he chose to reveal himself to people. And the same is true for Mary on this occasion. She turned and saw Jesus. Now, maybe it's because her eyes are so flooded with tears that she can't focus and recognize him. We're not told exactly, but yet the idea is that Mary does not recognize Jesus. And then she turns back, apparently, to the sepulcher. And Jesus says to her, woman, why weepest thou? Same question the angels had asked, but he adds another question. And whom seekest thou? And that's the real question. Who are you looking for? And here's our text. She's supposing him to be the gardener. She's supposing him. Now, how does John know that this is what she thought? She's supposing him. Obviously, she must have reiterated or recounted the story to the disciples later. Uh, I thought he was the gardener. And John, under divine inspiration, of course, records that little tidbit of information in his narrative she supposing him to be the gardener said sir if thou hast borne him hence if you've carried him away tell me where thou hast laid him and i will take him away all i want is the body of jesus i don't know if you've moved him or if grave robbers have taken him but if you know where he is please tell me and i'll assume responsibility for him at that moment and then he said to her mary and there's something about that voice that she recognizes You know, one of my children will call me on the telephone, and I know exactly, immediately, instantly, which one it is. I I know it's one of my kids. Hi, Dad. I can tell you which one it is. Sometimes my mom or my dad will call me on the telephone. They always start by saying, Mike, this is Dad. Or Mike, this is Mom. And I want to say that's superfluous information. I knew that before you said it because I recognized your voice, right? And if you are familiar with somebody, you know their voice, right? And when he said, Mary, this little lamb knew the shepherd's voice. And she turned back and she said, Rabboni. Now, Rabboni is a stronger form of rabbi. Rabbi means teacher, master. Rabboni means my teacher, my master. It's a very personal, intimate kind of relationship that is described here Mary says Rabboni and apparently she threw herself at his feet and wrapped her arms around his legs in worship because he says to her touch me not that is don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father there will be a time for worship at my feet there will be a time for intimate communion but right now is a time for action but go and tell This is not a time to stay right here. I mean, she is surprised by joy. And she has found the one whom her soul loves. And she doesn't want to let him go. But Jesus says, this is the time for ministry. You go tell others that I ascend to my father and your father. What we learn here is that Jesus' sufferings both began and ended in a garden. His sufferings began in the garden of Gethsemane in which his soul was exceeding sorrowful as he anticipated the cross. And it ended with the garden tomb in which the risen Christ appeared to Mary Magdalene. And by the way, this is the first post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Now, there are several of them in the gospel record. There are several post-resurrection appearances, but this is the first of the bunch, and it's to a single individual. Interestingly, it's not to Peter. It's not to James or John or to any of the disciples. It's not even to his mother. The first post-resurrection of Jesus is to this woman whose life had been radically transformed by Jesus, for we learn about her that she's the one out of whom Jesus had cast seven devils. She was demon-possessed in a monstrous way, and Jesus had exorcised the demons from Mary Magdalene. I don't know why she was demon possessed. Maybe she was involved in all sorts of illicit activity. We don't know that for sure. But anyway, the devil had seen an opportunity to get a foothold into her life, and he had just taken over, and Jesus had transformed her. He'd cast out seven devils out of Mary Magdalene, and may I say, dear friends, he's the most important person in the world in her mind. And he meets her in the garden. You know that song we sing? Now, I've never personally, I mean, I used to just, like, think it was way too sentimental and mushy. I come to the garden alone. You've heard that? While the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear. I've learned, my friends, that that's a sweet song. It's a romantic song. But it's taken from Mary Magdalene coming to the garden. And she hears a voice falling on her ear, so sweetly, Mary. And she has personal, intimate fellowship with Jesus. That's the story that is behind that song. By the way, I said I didn't used to like it, but I do like it now. You say it's awfully sentimental and, you know. Well, there is a romantic dimension to the Christian life. Never forget it. Christianity is not just doctrine, my beloved. May I say the heart's involved. We love our Savior, don't we? We ought to. Lovest thou me more than these? There's nothing wrong, my beloved, with having a love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene had that. Now, before the clock beats me today, let's get to our thought. I've sort of set up the story. What is the significance of the garden motif in the Bible? It's a theme that runs from Genesis to Revelation. What is a garden? Have you ever thought about it? What is a garden? A garden is man's attempt to tame a small section of land in the wide, wide wilderness of this world, right? A garden is not a desert. My gardens have been in the past, my vegetable gardens. (laughs) Uh, But it's not supposed to be a desert. A garden is not a jungle. I've had a few gardens like that too. But a garden is man's attempt to mark out A certain plot of land, a small plot of land. Whether you're talking about a vegetable garden, or an herb garden, or a flower garden, or an orchard, or a vineyard, right? It is man's attempt. Usually we start by marking out a plot of ground, and we till that plot of ground. We break the soil. We don't till the whole area around it. You see, it's a small plot that is marked out and separated from the surrounding terrain. For the purpose of cultivating a small slice of paradise in a very controlled environment. That's a garden, right? Does this world naturally have gardens? No. The world is a wilderness. You agree? Drive down the road and see where they haven't mowed or thinned the brush, and you'll see a thicket, you'll see a jungle, you'll see an impassable part of maybe it's a low place, uh, you know, maybe it's a creek or a you know some kind of ravine. And may I say that where you find a garden, you see man has made the effort to carve out a little slice of paradise. He works at it. He concentrates his effort on keeping it free of weeds, on making sure the plants are healthy. If you've ever sat in a garden, you know, some of these historical society places around will have gardens. You know, Brook Green Garden down in South Carolina and Vereen Garden up here in Little River. And there are places where you can go and just meditate and enjoy. And, you know, if you leave it alone for a little while, I was driving by a golf course the other day that has been sold to somebody else and they are allowing it to lie fallow and it doesn't look manicured and nice like it once did. It's grown over with weeds and it's, it's all disheveled and it doesn't take long for a garden to go back to the wilderness, right? You've got to work at it. Okay, that's the thought this morning. Here's a garden tomb. Here's a garden where the body of Jesus was laid. Joseph of Arimathea has owned this tomb. It's a rich man's tomb and he has given it to Jesus. Jesus didn't buy it from him. He just borrowed it. you know why? He wasn't going to need it very long. Three days and three nights. Okay. The kings of the Old Testament were fond of gardens. Ahab, remember, wanted to buy Naboth's vineyard, 1 Kings 21, so that he could turn it into a garden of herbs, he said. Solomon had many gardens. King Solomon, Ecclesiastes 2.5, Solomon says, I made me gardens... And planted vineyards, and I made orchards, and planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. And when you turn to the Song of Solomon, this is a story about Solomon leaving Jerusalem to go to the hill country of Bethlehem, Judah, to visit some of his garden holdings. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1 I am come into my garden, he says, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I've drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O oh, friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O oh, beloved. It's a very pastoral, beautiful, lovely scene, isn't it? Chapter 6 of Song of Solomon, verse 2. My beloved has gone down into his garden, the Shulamite says, to the beds of spices to feed in the gardens and to gather lilies. If you've never sat in a garden and just enjoyed this bird singing, and the beautiful flowers, you're missing a great deal. That's what a garden is. When the Israelites were sent to Babylon for 70 years, Jeremiah 29, 5, God says the time of captivity will be long, so build houses, plant gardens, and eat the fruit thereof, and raise families. In other words, you can't control the world around you, so slice out a little small section And plant your gardens and build a house and raise your children, enjoy life. By the way, that's a secret to God's people when we're living in Babylon, when we're living in a world that's at war. It's good for us, my friends, to focus on the local level. Let's build houses, let's plant gardens, let's raise our family, let's throw ourselves into life on a local level and not worry about what's happening so much on the global scale. That's the key to sanity. That's a key to sanity, an important key. Gardens. Interestingly, I think Mary's supposition here that Jesus was the gardener was very accurate. For the Bible teaches us that our Lord was the first gardener in history. Genesis chapter 2 verse 8 says, And the Lord God planted a garden in the east of Eden. Who planted this first garden? God did. He's the first gardener. Gardening began with God. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. So Eden is this section and God plants a garden in the eastern part of it. And it says, there he put the man whom he had formed. So where did God put Adam? In a garden. And the Lord God, he says, out of the ground, God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. It broke into four heads. The name of the first is Pison. The name of the second river was Gihon. The name of the third river was Hiddekel, And the name of the fourth was Euphrates. And these rivers, he says, watered the garden where God had placed the man. He put him into the Garden of Eden, and he put him there not to sit and enjoy it, but to dress and to keep it. To dress and to keep it. In the third chapter of Genesis, verse 23, it says, Therefore the Lord God sent Adam forth out of the Garden of Eden. Now what's happened between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3? Well, Adam has disobeyed God. He's transgressed, and the Lord has barred him from the Garden of Eden, And he was sent to till the ground from whence he was taken. That is, instead of dressing and keeping this beautiful garden, now he's out there to bust clods, dirt clods, and rocks, and to pull careless weeds and till the ground in the sweat of his brow. Toilsome labor. So God drove out the man he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden, cherubims with a flaming sword turning every which way to keep the way to the tree of life. You know that story, don't you? Adam was the first human gardener that God put in his garden to dress and to keep it. But Adam sinned and was banned from the garden, right? Now we come to John chapter 20 in our text this morning. And Mary supposes Jesus to be the gardener. I'll tell you, he's the true gardener. The second man, the last Adam. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. Our Lord takes the name of the second Adam, and the first Adam was a gardener, says Spurgeon. Moses tells us that the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to dress and keep it. Man in his best estate was not able to live in this world in a paradise of indolent luxury, but in a garden of recompensed toil. It's a neat thought there. Behold, the church, says Spurgeon, is Christ's Eden. Watered by the river of life and so fertilized that all manner of fruits are brought forth unto God. And he, our second Adam, walks in this spiritual Eden to dress it and to keep it. And so by a type we see that we are right in supposing Jesus to be the gardener. Thus also Solomon thought of him when he described the royal bridegroom as going down with his spouse to the garden where the flowers appeared on the earth and the fig tree had put forth her green figs. Our adorable Lord Jesus is one that cares for the flowers and fruits of his church. Are we incorrect to suppose Jesus to be the ultimate gardener this morning? I, I say not. Sinclair Ferguson, a popular theologian, says Adam was to garden the whole earth for the glory of his father, but he failed. Created to make the dust fruitful, he himself became part of that dust. He went back to the dust from whence he was taken as a result of his sin. The Garden of Eden became the wilderness of this world. But do you also remember how John's gospel, Mr. Ferguson says, records what happened on the morning of Jesus' resurrection He was the beginning of the new creation, the firstborn from the dead. But Mary Magdalene did not recognize him. Instead, she spoke to him, supposing him to be the gardener. Well, who else would he be at that time of the morning? The gardener? Yes, indeed. He is the gardener. He is the second man, the last Adam, who is now beginning to restore the garden. In other words, my friends, this world is not paradise anymore, is it? But you remember what Jesus said to the thief on the cross? Today thou shalt be with me in what? He called heaven paradise. No doubt a reference to paradise lost in the Garden of Eden, paradise now restored through his death, burial, and resurrection. My beloved, here's the good news. This world does not look much like a garden, does it? And it's not. But the second Adam has risen from the dead to restore paradise lost, to restore the garden paradise for the people of God. And you say, Brother Mike, where can I find such a garden paradise in this desert land that is this world? First, in your own soul. The soul is Christ's garden. Have you contrasted Genesis 3.8 with our text, John twenty seventeen? 17? Genesis 3.8 says... They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. When is the cool of the day? Early morning hours, right? When did God like to take his walks? (laughs) Early morning hours. God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and they heard the voice of the Lord. And what did they do? They went and hid. They recognized the voice, but they wanted to hide from him because they were ashamed, guilt over their sins. Contrast that with John 20:17. Mary in the cool of the day hears the gardener's voice and she recognizes it. And instead of running to hide, what does she do? She flees to him to embrace him. The point, dear friend, is that Mary's soul had experienced transformation. She before was weeping profusely, now she's full of joy unspeakable. And full of glory. And why is that? Because her soul has found its springtime. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in the land. The flowers are beginning to bloom. The smell of the fig tree, the the apple tree is beginning to bloom and blossom. And all of nature has revived. That's what's happened in her soul. You know where revival starts, my friends? It starts in your heart and in mine. You say, we need revival in the church. Well, my beloved, it's going to start with you and you and you and you and me. I like that hymn we sing sometimes, Lord, send a revival and let it start with me. You know what a church consists of? Individuals. You say, our church is just dead. Well, do you know what we need? We need individuals to have revival in their souls. We need people to be brought back to the Lord. We need people to have their eyes opened. We need the sorrow and the grief and the pressures and burdens of this life like Mary was feeling that day. We need that to be transformed into joy, unspeakable and full of glory. And there's where the garden starts. The Lord is the gardener of our souls. Of our souls. Isaiah 58 verse 11 puts it like this. The Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought. And make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. Oh, my friends, has springtime ever blossomed in your heart and in your soul? You say, Brother Mike, it's been a long time the scar tissue of cynicism and the world has just taken a toll on me and I've lost my first love, I've lost that early devotion and warmth and affection I had for Christ, then may the heavenly garden, my friends, break up your fallow ground in your soul. And may he bring renewal and revival like Mary experienced on this occasion. May you see the risen Christ with fresh anointed eyes You said, Brother Mike, I don't know how it will happen. Well, my father's the husbandman, says Jesus. I'm the true vine, and every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges, that it may bring forth more fruit. Herein is my father glorified that you bear much fruit. May God bless your soul and mine to bear the fruit of the Spirit in abundance. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, May the garden of your soul, my beloved, be fruitful. Not only is the soul Christ's garden, do you know one other place you can find a garden in this world? Now they're not prevalent. Gardens are not prevalent. In fact, you have to drive a few miles to get to one, don't you? You say, well, I've tried to make one in my backyard. Well, I hope you're working on it steadily, because if you neglect it for the least little time, the weeds will overgrow it, right? But you know, that's what life is. It's trying to make the garden, trying to make my little slice of the world pleasant and peaceful and fruitful. And home is a wonderful thought. In the Babylon of this world, I'm glad to have a garden in our home. But you know, the best garden you can find in this world is in the church. The church is the vineyard of his own right hands planting. Psalm 80. This is God's project, it's his garden. The world is not religious and devout and pious and close to God, but the church is supposed to be, right? This is the place where God has marked out a place and people. He's planted some plants. And he says in Song of Solomon 4.12, A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. The church is supposed to be different from the world. It's marked out. It has boundaries. We can't be followers of Jesus, profess his name on our own terms, in other words. The church is his special project. And he says, it's a spring shut up and it's a fountain sealed. But oh, the joys that are inside the garden. The church, my beloved, is Christ's garden. But the ultimate garden is coming in heavenly peace. Because the gardener is alive from the dead, my beloved, the best is yet to come. Heaven is Christ's eternal garden city. Revelation 21:22. He showed me a pure river of water of life. Remember the river coming out of Eden the four he- that broke into four heads and watered the garden of Eden? He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was the tree of what? The same tree we read about in Genesis. The tree of life it resurfaces in the new garden city of God. You know, it's not uncommon for developers of cities, community planners, to plan a new town around a tropical or garden theme. You see a number of those in Florida, right? Winter Garden, Florida. What is it? It's a place that is perpetually blooming. It's supposed to be a garden city. It's a great idea because cities are full of you know they're concrete jungles they're full of bricks and mortar and jackhammers and tractor trailer and uh sirens and you say i want to bring some green space into this city you know that's the new the new idea a garden city a lot of these subdivisions around are built around this garden theme we're going to develop a subdivision with a pond and with beautiful shrubbery and flowers and you know rolling hills and terrain and it's a garden theme. did you know heaven Is not a concrete jungle. It's an eternal city, my friends, but it's not full of sirens and jackhammers and tractor trailer horns and inner city crime. Heaven is a garden city where a river flows through it. And in the midst of that river is the tree of life whose branches grow on either side of the river, and people can pick 12 manner of fruit, and the roses never fade. That doesn't say that in Revelation 21-22, but I wouldn't doubt it a bit. The roses never fade. The fragrance of heaven, my beloved, is peaceful and pure and blissful forever and ever. Here's the point of our story this morning. Our death occurred in a garden, but our resurrection also took place in a garden. And we've been raised in Christ, never to die again. And because of that empty garden tomb, my beloved, you and I who live... In a culture that's currently scarred by sin and death, yet we may look forward in hopeful anticipation to an everlasting garden paradise, as Jesus called it in his conversation with the penitent thief, where, like Mary Magdalene, there we may cling to his feet with surprised joy in perpetual communion with our risen Lord. You say, Brother Mike, I can't wait. Well, until that time comes, our commission right now is what Jesus told Mary. Touch me not. Don't linger right now, but get busy serving me. Our commission, like Mary's, is to go and tell my disciples that I am risen again from the dead. Go and proclaim it, my friends, every one of us today. Never shirk the task of saying he is risen. He is risen indeed, because there's not a better message than the message about our heavenly gardener.